Welcome to Professor Forever. I am the Professor Forever. I hope you're well today. Listeners have asked, and I have asked myself, why I don't do more movie reviews. I think the answer is probably wrapped up uncomfortably in the idea that I don't want an episode to be skipped by any listener. But anyway, today I am giving in, and I am going to give my review. I'm feigning to use the word critique. Maybe when I get into the discussion, that will become more apparent, the reason why. Anyway, I'd like to start with Avatar, The Way of Water. So, many critiques and critics of Avatar The Way of Water are out there. Yet, it is the highest grossing film of 2022. It is the seventh, I think, highest grossing film of all time in the history of keeping these statistics. So, How do those two things fit together? That critics, some critics have panned it. Other critics are quite scathing. And yet, people are going to see this movie across the world in droves. Well, have I ever talked about the Twilight Zone theory? I think I have, because I've talked about teaching creative writing. Are you familiar with Twilight Zone? And I mean the Rod Serling, first iteration of Twilight Zone. He had an unbelievably flexible idea when he came up with the Twilight Zone. Because anything goes. You don't have to explain anything as to why something happened in a Twilight Zone episode. There needs to be no logic, no explanation. I ask my creative writing students not to write Twilight Zone stories because they being in academia, are at least allegedly striving for a different kind of writing with more literary standards. 
And in literary standards, the deus ex machina coming out, you know, the God opening up the sky and all of a sudden everybody was rescued or the irony. That was the other thing about Twilight Zone, right? Most of the episodes are ironic. The thing that shouldn't happen happens. To give that definition of irony that I heard first in the movie Singles. Okay, so I asked them not to do that because we want text that's, you know, a little more complex and uh, where you can see how a story might turn. Well, there is a clash between literary standards and what I would call general population consumption of art standards. And that's what's happening, in my opinion, with Avatar. It is sating the desires of a general population, but falling short of the standards that most critics want in film. There is a process that has been termed the juvenilization of film. And people who really appreciate foreign film, especially European film, French New Wave, I'm thinking of in particular, uh, don't they probably were the ones that came up with it, Cahiers du Cinema, because that was when Steven Spielberg uh, released E.T., I think. They thought that maybe this pattern was going to continue where movie makers in America were going to be sating the general population desires in film product. And juvenilization meant this product would be less complex, less literary, if you will, less advanced, uh, less adult than where film went and continues to go in other countries. It's an interesting concept. Read about it sometime. Juvenilization of American film. Okay, so Avatar, The Way of Water, fulfills those many general population standards. There's a little tension, a little fear, stereotypical relatability, um, a healthy dose of poignancy, maybe even more than healthy, uh, family and wholesome values, they come up on top, right? And actually, that is a Twilight Zone move, too. Usually, either we feel bad because the moral outcome did not occur, or the moral outcome won over. And that happens in Avatar Way of Water, too. 
So another clash that I can think about with this movie. So that's a clash between what the critics want and what the general population wants. And I'm sure that this has been discussed in film magazines along the way. I wonder if there's a way to, you know, to somehow remediate the clash. But there's another clash involved in Avatar The Way of Water, and that is James Cameron. And I have talked with my friends about how, like James Cameron, I have a personality that have that has traits that clash. Do you have traits that clash? I mean, is that one of the driving forces of who you are? In my case, I would, like when I ran a show in Chicago, Yammer, right? I would make body jokes and I would, you know, carouse and get drunk. And and then, so that was the clown side. And then I would get up and, you know, spiel off a pretty serious Emily Dickinson poem and then add a little bit of analysis. So those two things clashed in me, and it seemed to work to my advantage. Okay, James Cameron. So James Cameron has clashes too. You know, he is the person that created Deep Sea Challenger that went down into the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the ocean that we know so far. Uh, He made that submersible. And he is very interested in researching and doing things to help the planet. So he's very green in that way, very ecological, ecologically minded. And so people who, you know, are on the side of saving the planet and wanting people to be adventurers in these areas that science as a mainstream, has seemed to lag behind. People appreciate that. People who are on the side of saving the planet. And so in Avatar, both Avatar movies, one and two, uh, that comes forward. His ideals in that realm come forward, Cameron's. He wants people to be united with nature and in his these two films, the Pandorans are linked biologically to nature, and they want to do everything they can to save the land and be respectful of the land. So there's the one side of the James Cameron. But he also likes to blow things up, right? <laughs> so in the movie... Avatar the Way of Water, the mercenaries blow things up and they blow living things up to scalp the brains of Pandoran sea creatures. So we've got that clash going on, right? Of course, the point of view of the film is that this is a bad thing. And also in the film, the U.S. government is looking for its traitor, the military. So Add that to the general population wish list, military, and blowing things up. 
So a clash is going on there. But I think the literary critics are really taking their literary standards into this gen pop movie. So, you know, there's a moral lesson in Avatar Way of Water that you shouldn't kill animals for greed and how indigenous and people that respect the planet uh, by learning how to communicate with nature are the better type of being. The whole experiment, the whole experience of Avatar Way of Water, the Way of Water, is a 3D virtual ride. I mean, I guess you could see in 2D, but I imagine that most people who are going to see the movie um, are going to see it for its full effect, which would be in the IMAX. It really did remind me of a 3D virtual ride, which brings up a memory for me. And that is a memory, a family memory of going to a place called Disney Quest. I don't know if Disney Quest had more than one location, but in 96, 97, um, when my sister Bonnie came to visit, oh no, I guess my sister Robin came to visit as a surprise birthday celebration for my sister Bonnie. And so Noah, Bonnie, Robin, and I spent time in downtown Chicago. And Disney Quest was on Michigan Avenue. My sister Robin especially is very much a fan of Disney. And so we used to, she lived in Tampa, and we used to go to her house to visit her and her family to go to Disney World a lot when she lived there. So we went to Disney Quest, and you could craft your own virtual roller coaster ride in Disney Quest, which we did. And I remember, too, that we were on this canoe ride, and you sit in a prop that looks like a canoe, and you move the oars, and then, depending on how you move the oars, you were taken on a virtual ride down whitewater. And I remember people gathering around to watch my family, the four of us, in this canoe, because we were so dramatic and so animated in our quest if you will, to make the ride as fun as possible. We were laughing and screaming and really moving around. And so we drew our, we drew attention to ourselves, which was not an unusual thing for the Hemingers, I should say. But anyway, so Avatar Way of Water was a 3D virtual ride, uh, flying, fighting, diving, swimming, going from air to water really quickly. And all in a very unique, innovative, and proprietary camera system that James Cameron invented. So he's not only an inventor, well, he invented the Deep Sea Challenger too, designed it and had it built. 
So he is an inventor as well as an adventurer. And watching this green screen and CGI-aided action on a 3D surround sound virtual experience is amazing. I cannot put, I can't seem to put an objective hat on with this Avatar series. I cried at the deaths. I, well, I became the general population for this film series. And so that's what I want to say about that. Um, I also recently went to see the creepy doll movie, Megan. And I forget what Megan stands for. It's an M and then a three third generation animatronic something uh, or artificial something, artificial AI something. So we went to see it. I gave it a 7.5, but my partner gave it a four. And I think that there's a, a good reason for the disparity in our ratings. So she and I have, it's interesting. So a general population standard for a horror movie is lower than the expectation bar that Nancy and I have for a horror movie because we're big horror movie fans and we like to see the genre advance. So we have a higher bar. I think we're writing one together, finally. And, you know, I've been listening to this jaw, this uh, song by the Talking Heads from the 70s, from the album More Songs About Buildings and Food, found a job, you know, about people that complain about TV and what's offered. And somebody says, well, you write it then. <laughs> I've thought that I should do this for a long time. And finally, maybe we'll actually get something out there as far as a horror product is concerned. But one complaint we've always had with gen pop horror movies, too much backstory. We don't need it. I don't think anybody needs it. I don't think the general population would, you know, be think stand up and go, wait, I needed that backstory. I needed to know why her girlfriend felt this way 20 years before this movie started. Um, if it's a psychological thriller, then that's a different story. But if it's just a regular, scary horror story, I don't need to see why the killer is the way he or she is. I feel like we find out that they are demented or they are a monster and not even a human being, and then any other humans that come in contact with this demento or this monster, we understand why we would side with the humans. I don't need to know why the killer is the way he, he or she is, or I don't need to meet their parents. Get into the action. Megan does not disappoint on this uh, level. Within five minutes, we have an accident, a tragic accident that creates an orphan, and we see what kind of evil genius the lead character is. So 
the AI creature, Megan, uh, looks like one of the Olsen twins to me. So that is up to you to decide whether or not that is creepy. I leave that up to you. Of course, this movie is, like many AI movies, a remake. Well, the first AI that I can remember in my experience that turns uh, would be 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was my first encounter that I can remember with a learning robot. So for me, this movie and many movies about corrupt AIs have been a remake of HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I appreciate that this film spends almost an equal amount of time with all three of the characters that are important. The inventor, the orphan child, and the AI being. And here's something. All three of them are female badasses. There are surprising turns in the movie, which I appreciate. Again, here's this uh, difference now. In a literary piece, a turn, you usually need to go back and see some clue or some, even if it's the faintest foreshadow that makes the turn make sense. I don't need that in a gen pop horror movie. They... It might seem like things are coming out of the blue, but for me, that's just the compactness that I want in a horror movie. So if a turn comes out of nowhere, I am not one to go, now wait, I didn't see one shade of this earlier. I just enjoy the surprise. There are horror movies that are literary, by the way. I need to say that right now. Um, I think Barbarian is a great example of a film script that can really take a lot of literary analysis. And films by A24, very excited about what that production studio is doing with horror. But I knew that this movie is a gen pop horror movie. It's not one of those higher level movies. So I go in with the expectation of wanting to be entertained and not bored. And I was not bored. So my partner was more aggressive on her critique. And that is mostly because she's an engineer. And I understand that. She pointed out, for example, where the programming of this AI would never work. And that makes sense to me because I feel that way in fields that I know. If I see something that could not happen in this day and age and the film is set in this day and age and it's happening, I totally under get upset about that. So it's kind of like a anachronistic thing, an anti-anachronistic thing or a, uh, uh, what do I want to say? Hmm, I don't know. But for an engineer to look at it and see that it's taking place in this day and age and go, that doesn't happen, they feel like people are being duped. 
And I, I understand that. This is a good reason to watch the movie Her. If you haven't seen it and you like horror, because it's more science fiction, right? It's set in the future. That Scarlett Johansson does a voiceover in it. She's fabulous. Joaquin Phoenix, always fabulous. So because it's set in the future, it has the freedom to allow many advances in the AI that are not available to creators today. So it would be hard for an engineer to say those things couldn't happen in the future. There is an homage, a very blatant homage to Chucky, you know, the friend forever. Is that what he is? We'll be best friends forever. God, I can't even remember the tagline. What is wrong with me? And I call myself a horror movie friend. Oh, any, a fan. Anyway, there is an homage to Chucky. And that reminds me to say this, that also pulls away from a high rating for Megan. Some of the things that happen in Megan are supernatural. And so there's this clash of, and actually it was my partner that pointed this out. Great point. There's this clash, again, that word, clash between things that could happen in a programming sense, and then all of a sudden supernatural stuff starts happening. Now in Chucky, it was all supernatural. Do you remember? Friend to the end. Uh, good buddy. Is that what it was? Friend to the end. Friends to the end. Anyway, so in Megan, there's the engineering protocol that makes this doll unbelievable. But then supernatural stuff starts happening. In Chucky, the whole film and the whole movement of the doll is fueled by the supernatural. In that case, as in voodoo, right? Dambala, remember that? Okay, so in Megan, those clash. And so that makes it a little cheesy. But the movie is nonetheless creepy. And the doll antics are very interesting. I was never bored. So I think you could probably wait to see Megan until it gets to the streaming platforms. I don't think it's worth the price of admission at a theater. So... That's what I want to say about these two things. Go see them. My review is done. Thank you for listening. Keep thinking. She's got no lessons planned for me Because she's not that fancy She's a professor forever Professor forever